What happens when you get a phone call and you don't recognize the number? It says unidentified or no name. What do you do? Do you answer it? Okay. What's that? <laughs> you answer in a different language. Ah. If most of us probably just ignore it. Okay. Even if we do recognize the numbers, we sometimes ignore them. But if it's somebody we don't know, we, it's like we're not really compelled to pick it up because it might be a, you know, a roof salesman, a window salesman, or something like that. And so we don't do it. The book of Colossians is basically, it's an unknown number coming to the Colossians. They really don't know the Apostle Paul. They've never met him. They, they know about him. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, they've never met. Paul's never been there, never came to that city. And so for him, he's a distant figure. Now, they may have heard of him because, remember, he's writing this letter because there are some teachers who have invaded the church who are giving false teaching, and some of them are Judaizers, some are Gnostics. The Judaizers have been a thorn in Paul's neck and back for a long time. They're the ones that have been creating problems throughout that whole region. And they have been attacking Paul for, for a long time. And so they knew of Paul, they knew of his ministry, and they were really harsh in their attacks against him. And it is, as shows up in other one of the epistles, they probably did this in their attacks to Paul, saying to, if I were a uh, Judaizer, saying to you in Colossae, you don't want to listen to the apostle Paul. He's a jailbird. He's been put in prison. He's been arrested. He's broken laws. And so they would use all that against Paul, which he talks about in other epistles, how that had happened. And he'll reference it here in just a moment. But there was also the other group of people were the Gnostics. And the reason I say all this, and not to bore you, but to just set the scene because of what he says in this first chapter. In the, in the Gnostic teachings, they would come and they were mysticism and all these types of things. The Gnostics were saying that Jesus was one, one of many who were created. That Jesus... Uh, um, Jesus, as they were, as they learned through their spiritual contacts, angels, that manifestations that would talk to them. These manifestations told us Gnostic teachers that Jesus was the first of all the created, that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh when he was here on earth. It was a spirit, and he was revealing some truth. And Jesus is somebody you need to believe in you know, the spirit being, but you also have to do more in order to get to heaven. You need to believe Jesus, but you also need to get baptized or join a certain church or give money or do other things. And so they added, they added to the work of Jesus Christ. And so these Gnostics were very teaching these doctrines and confusing the believers. And there's something else that they did that we have to keep in mind as we go into this text. The Gnostics would stand up and say, I am more spiritual than you. I'm a teacher. I have a spirit angel. You don't. Only a few of us have these spirit guides. And so you need to listen to me because I am higher in the spiritual chain than you are. And so they would lord it over the people. And they would put down the other individuals. And so Paul, as you read chapter 1, it is amazing how Paul, right away, when he starts chapter 1, he starts addressing all these different comments. If, if you want to see what I mean here, just, just go through chapter 1 with me. Right away, Paul starts speaking about everyone can know the will of God. We talked about this already in verse 9. Everyone can have spiritual understanding. In chapter 1, we haven't got there yet. We're doing it this morning. Look at verses 25 and 26. He makes the comment that there's mysteries from generations that are being revealed. And mysteries was a key Gnostic idea. 
<clears throat> that they knew the mysteries. He's saying they're being revealed, and he says literally, to all the saints. He makes the comment, as you go a little bit further in verse 28, he says that we're trying to give all wisdom to all believers, that every believer may be presented mature in Jesus Christ. So contrary to the Gnostics, he's saying, hey, listen, we are all level at the foot of the cross. We can all learn truth. We can all gain the benefit. And then when it comes to Jesus Christ, he immediately talks about Jesus. He immediately, as you go into the book, starts talking about Jesus' blood, Jesus' body, Jesus' physical sacrifice, in denial, in contradiction to what the Gnostics were saying, that Jesus was just a spiritual entity on earth. And so then he talks about not only is Jesus come in the flesh, but he also talks about Jesus is better than all these other angels. That Jesus was, in fact, the creator of all the angels. That Jesus is God in the flesh. We talked about all that last week, and that whole idea of preeminence. But right away, getting into the book, Paul is addressing these false teachings. And he also addresses, right away, an attitude. The Gnostics say, I'm better than you because I'm clergy. That's Gnosticism. That's part of what they were teaching. Paul, right away, he starts talking about himself in this chapter. Remember, he's introducing himself, unknown number. They don't know that much about him. And he describes himself with the same word twice in the second half of the chapter. If you look through it, you might catch it right away. If you start with, you know, verse 23, 24, 25, you're going to see right away, he doesn't right away say, I am this super Christian. He right away uses the term twice, same term. I'm a minister. I'm a minister. And he says it in verse 23, says it in verse 25. Now, that may not mean much to you because of our culture. We take the word minister and usually apply it to a professional clergyman. That's not the way it was applied in the New Testament. The word literally that's used here is I'm a diakonos. Do, do we get any kind of a term in church that sounds familiar? Deacon, okay. I'm a table waiter. I'm a servant. I'm, I'm to be running quickly to take care of other people's needs. It's used in the New Testament of angels. It's used of the ladies who took care of providing for Jesus. It's used of deacons. We get that title, but those who would take care of the widows. It is used of preachers that they are servants. But the concept here that Paul is getting at is not a professional clergyman. He is saying, I'm a servant. And he's going to describe himself as a servant of two different but related entities or thoughts. He says in verse 23, I am a servant of the gospel. And then he says in, the, in verse 25, I'm a servant of the body of Christ, the church. Now these are unique. We don't find him describing himself as a servant this way in other epistles, but he does describe himself elsewhere as a servant of Jesus Christ. But in Colossians, he very clearly says, I am a servant of the gospel, I'm a servant of you, the church. And then he expands it to the, the large church as well, uh, the, the body of Christ. And so he's describing himself in this totally contrary to the, to the Gnostics. The Gnostics would elevate themselves. Paul is de-elevating himself. Doesn't he remind you of John the Baptist's famous remark? He must increase, I must. Yeah, that's where Paul is coming from. And so as he begins this book, he's addressing issues, but he's going to make it laid out for us that servanthood is really a good thing. Now, again, in America, we don't think so. 
in America are celebrities, the ones who hit the news, that hit on you know, Hollywood shows and everything. They, you know, we, we usually don't know the stunt doubles. They're not the names that, that are popular with, you know, when we look at actors. We typically don't know who was running the camera from the film. We know the, the, cele- the celebrities. We, we recognize those guys who followed the president, okay? But the, they're called what? Secret service, okay? They want to keep some kind of a low profile, okay? In the same way, we don't know who flies Air Force One. It must be a great, great job to have, right? To fly that thing, but those aren't the those aren't celebrities in our culture. We usually, you know, we pick faces and put them up on the people who are in front and center, and we get that attitude that you know being behind the scenes isn't important. But in Christianity, Jesus spoke just the opposite. You see, back in Bible days, very similar to 2020 in America, people in Bible days said, if you're a servant, you're a nobody. If you take that position and say, I'm going to serve others, that means you're incompetent. That means you're weak. And that was Roman and Greek thinking. But in Christianity, Jesus has a different message for his followers. Isn't it interesting to go through just the teachings of Jesus and notice how he promotes serving, servanthood, serving others? Watch, just for a sec. Mark chapter chapter 9. And these are different, different times he says it. If any man desires to be first... If you really want top-notch billing, become a servant. He says the same thing. Whosoever of you will be chief, become a servant. He says the same thing in the Passion Week. He that is greatest among you is going to be your servant. He says even during the Passion Week in that final days, he says, this is who's going to get rewarded. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He talks about servanthood when he gives his message and, and his, he's preaching in Jerusalem where he says, hey, listen, you serve me, and you're going to be honored by the Father. He even says, hey, follow my example. My example of not seeking to be served, but to serve others. And he says, if I then your Lord have even bow down to wash people's feet, you should do that. You should do that as well. He says, because you're not greater than I am. To be really Christ-like, servanthood. In fact, Jesus is commanded in the New Testament, we're told, have the same mentality of serving others that Jesus had. Who left heaven, thought it not something to keep to himself, but came, took the form of a servant, and then what happens? God highly exalts him. Servanthood is great. It is wonderful to take an attitude of serving, serving, serving. Contrary to what we're, we're inclined to do. Contrary to our culture. Our culture says, look out for number, okay? Our culture says, it's all about me. And Jesus isn't saying, no, it's not. It's about Jesus. He's preeminent. But on a day-to-day basis, servanthood, servanthood, servanthood. And Paul does that. And Paul says, I'm a servant, which means four different thoughts from, from his example of servanthood in this text. Serving the gospel, serving others means you do what you're called to do. Paul did what he was called to do. What I mean by that is this. In this passage, Paul makes it very clear, I was made a servant. He says that twice where he makes that comment at the end of verse 23. And then he makes that comment in verse 25. I was made a servant. Point is, this isn't something that he was opting to do because in his Jewish mind, he was going to be a leader. He was going to be the, you know, the one predominant and he was going to make a name for himself by going out and persecuting Christians and putting 
putting down Christianity. And he says, but God made me a servant. God gave me this task. And God assigned me this task to be a servant. And he talks about, and he relates that idea in Acts chapter 9, about how God came to him. We all remember the setting. He's going to Damascus. He's exercising his authority over everybody. He's got the, you know, the written laws to go and grab the Christians and persecute them. And God knocks him down physically, literally, spiritually. God lays him low. Remember the, the bright sun? It would be like a day like today sun beaming and all of a sudden a bright light in the sky brighter than the sun and it just it, it just devastates Paul where he's on his knees and he says Lord what would you have me to do and in that text God speaks to him and God gives him a job actually what happens is he's blinded for a couple days and then the prophet comes and relays the message this is the message this is the job he's given to do bear my name before the Gentiles the kings and the children of Israel and so he's given that assignment. And he's not only given that assignment to bear the gospel, but he mentions as well that he's supposed to be getting this out to everyone. And he says, I'm still doing this now years later. Look at the text. Look at the text where he is saying in this passage, verse 23. Let's, let's kind of get the flow. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And so he's saying, I'm ministering the gospel that was supposed to be spread through all the earth. And basically what he does in the previous words right before that, he has described the gospel, the good news. If you weren't here Sunday night or didn't listen in Sunday night, let me take just a minute and, and set the context. Starting in verses 20 and 21 and 22, he defines the gospel. He says, this is what I, am, I was told to do. I was to bear this message. A message that says that at, in the past, we were, and he describes himself included, we were, you Colossians as well, we were alienated, word is estranged, afar from God. And we were enemies of God. And this is God's description of us, that prior to being born again, we were divided from God. That division came because of us. That division came because we were considered hostile against God. God knew that in our minds, he talks about it, enemies in our minds, if you look at the verse. He says we are enemies in our minds and our wicked works. And that's true. That is a description of you and me. You cannot look and say, it's Adam and Eve's fault and their fault only. Yeah, they introduced it, but we chose to continue it. And you and I are guilty of having thoughts that are contrary to the Lord, that are offensive to the Lord, that at times are antagonistic to the Lord. We, by our deeds, by our choice, have rebelled against him. And as a result, we were estranged. We were as if there was this wall between God and us and there's nothing we could do, could do to tear down this wall. In fact, tearing down the wall, as I said last night, it would be like you and I attacking a concrete wall with a plastic hammer. It wouldn't work. But he goes on and he says, that's the way we were. That's the bad news. But the good news is, yet now. And that very strongly in the chapter, chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, yet now, it's like something has changed. Something has in the present been, been different now from this alienation. Yet now has he reconciled, he's removed the barrier. He's taken it down, he's torn down the wall. And if you look at the passage, it's not us. 
He reconciled us to himself. He tore down the wall. And it tells us how Jesus did it. How Jesus did it through his blood. It talks about having made peace at the beginning of this paragraph. Through his blood. It talks about how he's reconciled us to him. In the, further in the text where it says in verse 22. In the body of his flesh through his death. He's made it so that the wall was torn out. That's the good news. Good news is we can have a relationship with God. Good news is the barrier of sin has been removed in the present so that in the future we are going to be presented before God and he describes how we can stand before God in the future. Not as guilty, fearful creatures anticipating damnation, but he says, literally, he says, we will be presented before God as holy. Our sins have been removed blameless. We won't have scars. We won't have, you know, we won't have the blemish. We won't have the stink of it, of the sin. To the point that we're free, unreprovable of accusation. Satan's not going to be able to say, yeah, but do you remember when they, and Jesus will defend us. This is the good news. This is the gospel that we were separated from God, but God did a work through his own personal sacrifice to remove this wall of partition and to elevate us to a place that we are acceptable in his sight. Good news. Good news that allows an individual who is ready to say goodbye to loved ones, I'll see you later. I'm going to be in heaven this week. Good news. And Paul says, that's what I was told to go out and give. And it's being preached everywhere. Because I was told to do this, and I have been doing this. But not only have I been told to get out this gospel, this good news, verse 25, he says something else I was told to give out. You look at verse 25. There's a word here that, that might be semi-confusing to, to just a couple of you, but it could be to several of us more. Wherefore, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, for your benefit, so as to fulfill the word of God. The word dispensation could refer to an epoch of time, an era of time when certain things were assigned. In the New Testament, we have the dispensation of grace, where we worship different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament had a dispensation of law. That, that's a theological thing. But the term literally meant you are given an assignment. You're given something to do. Well, he says, I've been given to an assignment to address a mystery. Now, this isn't like you know, a Sherlock's home, Agatha Christie mystery. Mystery in Bible days, the word used for mystery, literally the word originally meant shut your mouth, to be silent. And it came to be the idea of something that wasn't talked about, something that, that you know, we didn't understand, we didn't know. You, know. you know how it is right now? Sometimes what the state tells us to do and how we're supposed to operate is a mystery, we're not sure what exactly is being said or how it's being said. You know, and so he's saying, okay, there is something that in the old ages, he's, he mentions that if you look at verse 26, there was something hid from other ages and other generations. They didn't know this. They haven't. But now it is being revealed to the saints in this time era. And now, he says, now it's being made manifest. And my job, was, my commission was to reveal the mystery to you. And to tell everybody, not only the gospel, but another aspect that I'm told to do, that is to give out the mystery. And so that mystery that he's talking about goes to all the saints, not just a special few, and it especially affects the Gentiles, which that should cause you and I to you know, perk up and say, wait a minute, this is for us. 
This mystery affects us because we're part of that Gentile crowd. Where he says, to whom God, he's talking about us, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among you and me, the Gentiles. And so Paul says, this was my assignment. I was told to do this. What is that mystery? What is it? And he defines as he goes through, and you have to remember, in the Old Testament era, if you and I wanted to worship Jehovah, we would convert to Judaism. We would all of a sudden have to go. We would have to go through a process. We would have to then become Jews and practice Judaism. And that was for years and years. And so if we wanted to worship God, we would have to go to the temple to worship. And our offspring would be proselytes, and they would be followers, but they would be converted Jews in that sense to the Old Testament. But now, he says, that's not true. Something has changed. And it's changed for our benefit, for the Colossians' benefit. And he defines what it is. This is what has changed drastically. That in the past, it wasn't this way. He mentions it at the, in, the, in the end of verse 27. He says there's two things that this mystery truth, this, this whole process, Christ is in you. Whoa, 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 whoa. To the Jews, that was unbelievable. The, the God dwelt in a temple. And now this new thought is, he's in you. You are the temple of God. That was, just, that, was, that was absolutely blowing the minds of the Jews. But not only was it different for the Jews, who else is included in God living in them? The Gentiles. The Gentiles have Jehovah living in them. Are you kidding? The Gentiles are considered dogs. The Gentiles are considered you know, not, not on the same level as us Jews. Even when they become proselytes and convert, they're a lower level. And Paul's saying, not anymore. The same God that saves the Jews dwells within them, and he also dwells within the Gentiles the same way. Christ in you. And in fact, you have a hope of glory. That in heaven, you're going to be experiencing the same things. You're, gonna, you're, you're not going to be considered second-class citizens in heaven. You're all part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And this was just something absolutely amazing, especially there's a group in the church that would find this hard to swallow. They're called Judy, Judaizers. And so Paul says, I was told to give this message. All of that information, just to bring us to the same simple thought. Paul, as a servant of this message, felt compelled to get out the good news. As a servant, felt compelled to tell people what he was told to tell them. He fulfilled his commission. He told people. He did exactly what he was told to do. Which brings me to think about this whole idea that this is Paul now. Saying, this is what I was told to do, and I'm doing it. I am preaching it. Look at verse 28. Whom I preach over and over and over again. And I am warning every man. Because I'm told to go to every man. And I'm telling them positives and negatives. And I'm sharing this just like God told me to do. This is what I'm doing. In other words, Paul, who is speaking about this message of reconciliation, in 2 Corinthians 5, he said that we all have the ministry of reconciliation because we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Paul not only preached it, he did it. He was practicing this idea of not just saying to the kids you do in Sunday school, the kids you talk about in your family, you should get out the gospel, you should get out the gospel. Paul did it. He practiced what he preached. He did what he was told to do. He's going out and he's preaching Christ. He's sharing Christ. He's not a hypocrite. 
Servants that are genuine are not hypocritical. They do what they're told. They don't pass it on to other people. In fact, Paul said, this is hard work what I'm doing. He says in the end, of, look at the last two verses of, the, of the, the passage here. He says, we preach, we warn, we teach so that we can present every man mature in Christ. Whereunto I also, I'm laboring. I am doing it right now. I am toiling to the point of exhaustion, literally is the word. I am, the word we get agonized from, that's the word striving. I am agonizing. I'm the athlete who is just pumping iron to the very limits I am the one who's running and stretching and, and I'm pushing myself to that full or half marathon. I am giving it all I got when I feel like I can't go anymore. I am straining myself to get out the gospel, to do what I'm told to do. And he writes this letter 30 years after he has been saved. And he can say, I'm still doing the job. I am still getting out the gospel. The, the, the message that God has given me, and I bring myself to this point this week, that I have to sit back and say, wait a minute. Do I remember that I've been called to be a servant of the gospel? Do you remember, born-again Christian, that you too are called to be a servant of the gospel? Haven't you been told to go out and preach the gospel to every creature? Yes, no. If you're born again, you've been given this commission. It's not for professionals. It's for the sheep to reproduce the sheep. You are supposed to be sharing the gospel. And you say, I'm a servant, I'm a servant, I'm a servant. Well, then you do what you've been told to do. Can you honestly say that you have personally bothered to share the gospel this past months? Can you honestly say before God that even though you've been saved, some of you for decades, some of you for weeks, some for months, can you say you have been doing it consistently, getting out the gospel? Can you honestly say that you give out the gospel to all peoples? That you aren't holding it back to just a select few, a special few that look like you or act like you or in your income? Can you honestly say, God, I can say I have toiled, I have stretched, I have agonized in building a friendship and a relationship with somebody so as to share the gospel? You know, we get so busy. We get so caught up with agonizing and toiling over things we want to do, which is fine. But have you agonized and toiled what Christ wants you to do? If not, he's not preeminent in your life. But if you're a servant, you do what you're told to do. And Paul says, that's me. That's, that's where I'm at. I'm introducing myself to you, and I can say this with the Holy Spirit as my witness I'm doing what I've been told to do. Can you say that today? That as a servant, you are doing what God has called you to do. But that's not just the only characteristic of his servanthood. The, these first two are the bulk of what we want to talk about. He says, that means I put other people first. That means I put other people first. In getting out the gospel, in teaching about this mystery and giving this good news, he said, I have become a minister of the body of Christ. In fact, he makes that comment, I've been given this commission. He says and makes that, that statement down in verse 25, it was given to me for you. And that's why I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that, he says in verse 28, we may present every man perfect. My goal in here, he says, is to help, be helpful, to benefit you, to serve you, to do what I'm called to do so as to be a blessing to you, to help you in all areas of your life. 
so that you can stand before Christ. And by the way, he says, while I am serving to get out the gospel, I am serving you, putting you first. It has cost me. It hasn't been easy. He's writing from jail. And he makes the comment, in order to be a servant even to the church, look at verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Okay? In my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church, I am ministering, which caused me a lot of sufferings, a lot of difficulties. And I'm doing it for you. I'm putting you first. I'm not putting my comfort first. Ooh, that's a change. And he says, hey, you know, part of what I'm doing and what I'm experiencing and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. That phrase has got a whole lot of people talking. In modern theology, people don't understand what he's getting at. There are some who say, Paul is saying that the reason he has to suffer is because Jesus' payment for our sin wasn't enough. Jesus' sufferings leave something undone. And so Paul has to suffer for the church to complete the church's salvation. Some modern teachers have said this proves purgatory. Do you know what purgatory is? It's like our parking lot, but all the time, hot. Like a mini, mini Hades. That you would go to after you die, and you suffer there for some of your sins. Jesus took away your original sin, but you have to pay for your own sins. So you go to purgatory. Some say this verse, verse, this verse proves that. That something was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That you have to do suffering to complete, to fill up, to finish off the sufferings of Jesus. Some say this. This verse proves why we need to go to other Christians and other saints who have suffered and pray to them so that their suffering can be added, you know, their, their good works of suffering can be added to the works of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. Do any of those three explanations sound appealing to you? Now, if you're still awake and with me, okay, all three of those are heresy. All three of them say that Jesus' death was not enough. That something has to be added to what Jesus did. And in the context of this passage, he's just said very clearly, Jesus is all we need. Go back, go back a couple of verses. Go back to verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood. We have it. We don't have to hope for or add to it. We already have complete forgiveness. Because of the work of Christ. Jesus said at the cross when he's hanging there, what, t- what uh, monetary term did he say? It is finished or paid in full. Okay? So to say that there's got to be more suffering would go in the face of what's already written in this very paragraph. Where he says, we've been reconciled by the sacrifice of Christ. The word reconciled means to remove completely So Paul can't be saying, oh, Jesus opened up the door, but we have to tear down the wall ourselves. Can't be. Can't be. He's got to be referring to something totally different. Jesus is all we need. He is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes into the Father but by him, period. 
And if we repent of our sins, we are saved if we believe in his work. We don't have to add to it. So what does this phrase mean? Uh, A better idea would be this, that he is saying something was predicted. I have to do something to complete what was predicted, to fulfill the word of God. What was predicted that still hasn't happened? Oh, it was predicted by Jesus that the world will hate you because they hate me. It was predicted to Paul that he must suffer great things for my name's sake. And what Paul is saying, I am suffering right now to complete the predicted expectations and responses of the world to the message that I'm giving. It's not for others. It's just this is a fulfillment of of Christianity. If we serve Christ, the world will hate us. He says, that's why I'm suffering. I'm suffering because I'm serving. And as I'm suffering for you to hear the truth, it's fulfilling the predictions that we Christians will suffer. Oh, by the way, just to add an emphasis where he says the afflictions of Christ, the word that is used for afflictions is never in the New Testament used to refer to the sufferings of Jesus for sin. Never. It just, it, it's something totally different. It's something much less than what Jesus did in sacrifice. And so basically, what he's saying is, I serve you people, you in Colossae, to the point that I am getting out this gospel, I am, I am toiling, I am getting out this good news that you're all on equal terms, and I put you so ahead of my personal comforts, I'm suffering. But I'm willing to suffer for your benefit. That's servanthood. Servanthood that says that I think you're important. Servanthood that says, hey, I'm going to preach the gospel to every, every person because they're worth it. I'm going to share the truth with all believers because they're worth it. I'm going to invest time in your lives because you're worth it. Ba- basically, he believes that everyone should hear the truth. He believes that every believer is capable of understanding truth, not just a select few. He believed that they could all handle wisdom, not just the Gnostics. He believed that everyone in the church could become mature in Christ. He believed that. He believed that to get this done, I've got to make some effort. I have got to labor. I have got to strive so I can help you to become all that God has in store for you. By the way, personally, do you agree with that fact that Christianity can be experienced by all believers in the fullness of knowing the will of God? Do you believe that all believers have the potential? If they serve, they have the potential of hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do you believe in your heart that all believers can understand the word of God if they apply themselves? I do. I believe that's biblical. I believe like Paul, therefore we should work to our very best to help our kids to know the truth. We should work to our very best to help you to learn truth so you can pass it on. And we serve one another that way. And so Paul gave of himself. He put others first. He didn't think that he was too important, too above everybody, that he didn't have to labor. I think this. Maybe I'm nuts. But I think teaching third and fourth and fifth grade, I think those kids are worth our effort and investment. That they can learn truth. And it's not below any of us 
to take the time to help train kids. Now, some of us are different skilled levels. You know, and some of us can do a better job than others. I understand that part. But I'm convinced in my heart that it's a worthwhile investment to invest in the teens and to have ministries to help them to grow because they can grow. I don't believe there's anybody too dumb that they can't serve the Lord. And so you and I, I think it's incumbent upon us to say, hey, those kids, hey, those young couples, hey, that per- I should take my time to help to minister to them. None of us should be too proud that we don't serve one another. None of us. There's a story that comes out of revolutionary history that talks about a time when they were, the revolutionary camp was resettling itself and, and there they were trying to set up the camp and get their, get their um, uh, protection, their defenses set up while they're setting up their camp. And a, a gentleman was coming by and heading into the camp, but he was in civilian clothing, just a very prominent-looking guy. He stopped and saw that these group of soldiers were working, and one soldier was yelling at them, berating them. And he said, "Uh, can I help you, gentlemen? And the man who was yelling and berating said, I'm trying to get these guys to work harder. We got the sun's going down. Got to work harder. Get this camp, you know, before General Washington comes back. We got to get everything in shape. And these guys are just being lazy. And so the man on the horse, you know, in civilian clothing said, well, why don't you help them instead of just boss them? And he says, I'm the corporal. I'm in charge. Well, you know, if you helped them, it would go a whole lot better. He says, that's below me. So the man on the horse got off and went and helped the men, and they got the job done, and he helped organize them a little bit better, and they got it done, and he got back on his horse, and he looked at the young man, the corporal, and he said, now, corporal, the next time there is an essential task to be done, and you are, it is too below your dignity. Send a note to the headquarters. And the commander-in-chief will respond. I will either come again myself, or I will send one of my staff to give a hand if it's too below your dignity. And then he wrote off, and the corporal got the rebuke. That even the commander-in-chief, General Washington, is not below helping to do a task. But you know, in God's church... There are some generals, some who think they're generals, that it is below them to teach kids. It is below them to do Bible studies. It is below them to write a note of encouragement to another saint. It is below their dignity to visit widows and shut-ins or make a phone call during COVID because my time is too precious. I look at Paul's life, and and the guy was amazing in his walk with the Lord. He's amazing in what he does. But the one thing that challenges me is he had a servant's attitude, like Christ. That I would do, he says, whatever I'm supposed to do, even if it meant serving other people. Serving others. He was not of the clergy mind that it is below me to spend time and effort serving other people. But not only did he serve... Can I add a third thought here? He did it with joy. It is one thing to serve, but it's a whole other thing to serve with joy. It's one thing, for instance, and and I'm not trying to berate you, please don't, but you know what I mean, because I've been there where you're at sometimes. It's one thing to come to church, 
but it's another thing to come with joy. Right? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm the only one in this room that I've come to church at times like, Ugh, i got to go through an entire sermon. And I can't imagine what it's like for you because you have to listen. Okay, I get to do all the haranguing here. But sometimes I, I don't serve with joy. <sighs> I got to love that woman with joy. I'm talking about our daughters. I'm talking about our daughters. Okay, that's a. I've got to. I've got to. I've got to give to the Lord's work. With joy. I've got to share the gospel. I've got to be hospitable. I got to entertain when the missionaries come through. You know. You're not going to say you know what I mean, okay? You won't impugn yourselves in this one. You ought not. Paul is writing and saying, okay, I am suffering, I'm laboring for you, but I'm doing it with joy. I am rejoicing in my sufferings. And he's, he makes the comment, okay, elsewhere, about how he suffered and he went through shipwrecks and storms and all kinds of difficulties. But, he says, I have learned through all the difficulties that when I'm weak, I'm strong. To give God the glory. To give God the praise. And he's now sitting in jail. Talk about having restrictions, folk. He's in jail. And he says, I'm rejoicing. I don't know about you. I don't think the last three, four months of this thing, I can honestly say I could write every day, I am rejoicing having restrictions. And being like I'm in a jail in my office or at home. And Paul did. Paul writes and he says, you know, when he says, I'm rejoicing, think this through. He is not pitying himself. He is not focusing primarily upon the difficulties and complaining and whining about it. He is not expressing, God, I don't understand what you're doing. How could you do this to me, God? He is not saying, if it weren't for you Colossians, I wouldn't be in jail. Yeah, oh, I'm glad I'm in jail for the gospel but you, he's not, he's, he's not resentful of the government who has put him in jail because of his faithful service. He never mentions it. He's, he's not saying the first thing out of his lips, pray for me, pray for me. It's really hard suffering because I gave you the gospel. Pray for me. He says, no, I'm rejoicing. How is it possible that we can rejoice in the middle of troubles? How is it possible to have a spirit? Now, it doesn't mean every moment they're going to be rejoicing. But how is it possible that when we spent some time this week and listening, we're talking with some of you know, one of the church families and they're saying goodbye to a loved one, that they're saying we're rejoicing in the Lord. We're giving God the glory. That mom, we're giving God the glory that my wife could be gone within hours. How is it that there is a heart, heartache, but there's a joy? Because when you and I go to the New Testament, we find out, wait a minute, rejoicing can happen if we remember that in the sufferings, we have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, what that might mean is it improves our fellowship with Jesus, our dependence upon him. What it could mean is that in my sufferings, I get to appreciate a little bit more what he did for me. In my sufferings, it helps me to rely upon his sustaining grace. I have fellowship in his sufferings. And so this is good for me. Uh, it means that if I'm suffering some attack or accusation, it means I must be doing something right. 
that somebody sees my testimony and they don't like it. It, it must mean that God is producing a maturity in my life that I don't know where it's going to end up, but he's building me, he's helping me, he's not done with me, because through the trials, I am brought to maturity. It means that I'm going to be rewarded in the future if I handle it right. That there's going to be that crown of life that's given to me. It means that through this occasion, like he frequently does, he can draw others to Jesus Christ as I am a witness and a testimony of God and his grace. It means that I can give Satan a good kick in the teeth who is trying to get me to deny the Lord and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do a Job thing. I'm going to stand there and say, I don't understand, but I want to be close to you. And I know that my Redeemer lives and I know that I'm going to see face to face. And uh, and I'm struggling, I need your help. And all that combined helps you and me to be able to say, hey, listen, we should be serving with joy. We should be serving even in difficult moments. Do you ever go to a store and have somebody wait on you that wasn't pleasant? Yes, no? Okay, we have this experience. We go to the store, which is an amazing experience. This is what COVID has done to me. Okay, a store is an outing. Okay. <laughs> so we go to the store. We're in the store, and there's a couple cash registers. One is closed, so there's only the one that's open. And we come up to the cash register, but there's no clerk. And there's no self-checkout in this store. Okay, it's not that modern. So we're in the store, and we look over here, and over about where you people are sitting, there's somebody, even much closer, somebody is stocking shelves. They look at us, smile. And all of a sudden, from over there, ring the bell! It's like, what? I don't... On the countertop, ring the bell, read the note. And there's, there's a bell, and there's paper wrapped up around it that you can't read, but, you know, when you push it down, it says, ring the bell for service. So we're standing there expecting somebody coming out of the back room. Gets up, walks over. <laughs> I had to ring the bell to get you to walk from over there and you knew we were standing here? I hate shopping. Now I hate shopping in that store forever. Okay. You ever go to a restaurant and you make an order and you got one of those pleasant waitresses? What do you want? Yeah, I'd like to have such and such. Okay. Yeah, I suppose you want something else too. Yeah, yeah. Can we have some water? Really? Yeah. With ice? What? Yeah. And then you dare change what it's normally made like. You, know, you want to do the McDonald's, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, you know, all that. But you're so afraid. If you say it, she's going to whack you. Do you go back to that store again? Nah. No, if there's a servant there who makes it miserable, you don't want to go back. I had to have a tooth pulled. So um, the thought is, okay, getting pulled teeth is not my cup of tea. And so I'm nervous about getting the tooth pulled, but I'd rather save the money on the tooth pulling than getting the whole root canal and all that from a tooth. So I go to the thing and semi-nervous, and the guy comes in. Yeah. And, I mean, he's bubbly. He, is, he made it a fun thing. Yeah. Not that I want to get more teeth pulled, but I told my wife, if I ever go and get another, I'm going back to him. Yeah. He was a delight. Yeah. Do this one. You, know. you go to church. 
You go to church and the preacher just tells you how bad you are. You know, and tells you how awful you are. You know, this week somebody was sharing with me that, you know, out of the region that their their church, their pastor put on the Facebook, you know, I minister to the most discontented group of sheep in the world. They complain, complain, complain. Nothing satisfies them. I guarantee you I'm not going back to that church. Right? You know, you've got to stop and ask yourself, when we serve the Lord, we're serving the gospel. We're serving other people. What kind of testimony do we give for advertising what we believe? Jesus has told us that joy is really, really important. Jesus has told us time and again that he wants joy in our lives because it's magnetic. It draws people in. He made this a theme in his sermon that last night before he died, he said it on several occasions about you should have cheerful, joyful attitudes. He mentions it in Romans that we should rejoice in our sufferings because of what he's doing. He mentioned this that to the people that Peter writes to that even though you're in heaviness, you should be rejoicing. He commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. This is the will of God concerning you. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into temptations. He's going to end up this chapter with the same thing. He's going to say, watch with thanksgiving. A joyful attitude. A spirit where people look and say, hey, You're serving Christ, and you look like you're enjoying it. Hey, you're going to church, and you look like you're enjoying it, and you don't even have the remote to turn me off. You at home can do it right about now, okay? (laughs) what, What have you been revealing of your character and the peace in your heart in the last weeks? What have you been presenting to the Lord when you say, God gave me a task to parent. God gave me a task to obey my parents. God gave me a task to work on my marriage. God gave me a task to deal with this person. Are you doing it with a joyful spirit? Are you serving those family members, that person, with a joy in your heart? Are you an advertisement that is drawing people to the work of Jesus Christ Or are you one of those table waiters that nobody ever wants to have business with again? That they don't want anything to do with it. They caused a sneer. I had the experience of being in a business place here in these last weeks. And in this business place, I was taking care of business for one of our church members and had set up the appointment in this office and was taking care of some things. And I heard somebody in in another part of the room and I recognized the voice. And I recognized, you know, the individual, know that they're a believer. And I could hear, because they, their voice is one of those voices that carries. And there they were, talking with the other people in this business place. And, whoa, nothing was going right. Nothing that that business was doing. Nothing at all with the governor and what he was doing. Nothing at all with, you know, how the COVID is being handled and what a, what a bunch of garp and junk and stuff and it's miserable and just ripping everybody and everything. And, you know, how this is... And, w- and when that person left, I heard the three people in the business place talking who had taken care of that person's business. And it was very interesting to hear their perspective. To hear their comment like, whoa, that is one miserable person. Whoa, that person keeps telling us we need to trust their Bible and their God. They've got nothing I want. 
If that's what it means to live with that type of spirit, there's no way I'm ever going to go and listen to what they're talking about when it comes to those gospel literature they hand out. It made me to stop and think, what kind of testimony do I give? What do I say when I hand out a track? What goes with it? Paul says, I'm serving the gospel and I'm doing it with joy. I'm giving it out. Let me, let me wind it up here. I'm serving with the Lord's help. He wraps up verse 29. He just basically says, Whereunto I am laboring, I am striving, according to his working, which he works in me mightily. You know, there's no doubt about it. Paul worked hard. We're not going to question that. There's no doubt that he cared for other people. We can't question that. Yeah, and he was successful. But I find it interesting that he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15. That he's comparing himself with the other apostles at one moment. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. And in that comment, he says, by God's grace, I'm an apostle. Though I'm the least, I'm an apostle. And he makes, he says, and I labored more abundantly than they did. He's not saying this with a boastful spirit. He's saying that even though I was the last one, I, I worked hard because of the commission that was given to me, and I labored hard, and I did it. And then he adds this, okay? Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Same thing here. I'm laboring, I'm toiling, but I'm not doing it in my own strength. I'm doing it in the strength that was given to me. Here is an exact translation of that phrase. According to his energy, which is energizing in me with power. Same word repeated twice. He says in this text that I am doing the job that God has called me to do, not in my own strength. Which says to me these things, that Paul, he was really serious about serving. He cared for other people. I admire that. He did his very best. But he didn't rely upon himself. He did it the way God told him to do it. Preach, warn, teach. Some negative, some positive. He did it with saying, it's God's wisdom. It's not my wisdom. I got to give out the truth, all truth. He did it seeking the Lord's direction. He did it seeking the Lord's encouragement. He did it with the idea that I'm going to work, but it's got to be God that produces the growth in those hearts. And here he is working. He's living out John chapter 15. Can I close with just reading these verses? In John 15, would you turn there please? John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking in his last night of ministry and describing what we need to do when we serve him. How we need to go about it. And he's talking in this parable, this, this section, about how you and I, we are plants. God's the farmer. And listen to what he says. I'm the vine, the fa my father is the farmer, the husbandman. Every branch of me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can what? But do we live that way? Do we, do I preach that way? As God, I need your help. Do we parent that way? God, I need your wisdom. Do we do our jobs that way? Or are we so filled with self-confidence that we no longer pray? We no longer plead. We no longer need to be in the word of God because we know it. We got it down pat. 
But he says in this text, very simply, he says, you got to let the written word. It's got to mature you. It's got to cleanse you. you got to let the living word nourish you. Being in fellowship with him so you're getting that strength, that encouragement. You need to leave on the living word to use you. Otherwise, without me, you can do nothing. And the Apostle Paul gives me an example of somebody who has a servant. He was genuine. He did what he was told to do. He, he served other people. He did it with joy. But he did it with relying upon the Lord. God, I need you. God, I need you. Help me through. Help me with what I do. But he was a servant. Serving the Lord to the best of his abilities. So what do I do with this? I think this. I think this week I need to, I need to walk around and remind myself, I'm a servant. I'm here to be a servant. Not to be served. I'm a servant. I think as well that you and I need to say to the best of our abilities, let's get the gospel out. To the best of our abilities, let's revisit next week. We'll start revisiting foundations and doing the Bible studies. We need to get the gospel out. With the best of our abilities, we need to just say, let's do it. Let's get those emails going. Let's, let's serve. Let's try to get out a witness and get out some tracks, COVID tracks on the track rack that may caught, catch people's attention. I need to serve other people this week. You need to serve other people this week. And I'm not saying you as a body. I'm saying you as an individual. It's easy for you to serve. It's harder for you. Where you say this week, I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to start sharing truth, what I've been reading, what I'm learning. I'm going to start helping somebody. I'm going to do what Paul did in this chapter. He prayed for them. We talked about that from verses 9 through 14. I'm going to be an encouragement to them. I think it's time some of you revisit the church directory this week. Pick a page of the directory and you be a blessing to people. Drop, uh, start praying for those people. Drop a note. Personally, you do it. Not your mom and dad, not your spouse. You do it. You go through that directory. You know who the shut-ins are. You know who some of the widows are. Who they can't come because of some health needs. And you make a phone call. You go out of your way to minister to somebody. And to be a blessing. And serve other people with joy. Relying upon the Lord to just use that. And you say, this is what I do. I'm going to try to encourage others in the Lord. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to try to get out the word of God. Servanthood. Servanthood. I read a really good story about servanthood. Rick Martin went down into the Philippines and started Iliola Baptist Church and Baptist College. And he talked about at Christmas time, a few years back, they were going to take their normal two-week breaks when schools were operating normal. He said what happened is the students decided that they were going to practice servanthood like Jesus. So what a number of them did said for this two-week vacation time, we're going to do, take our vacation time, we're going to serve. Some started working and volunteering at food kitchens. Some started visiting some of the elderly and trying to help them out. Some started different ministries. And there was one young man, Arturo Morales, that said, I'm going to do some backyard clubs, children's clubs. He had the money to go home to another island, but he said, I'm going to take that money, stay here and support myself. And we're going to do this for my, this is my Christmas gift to the Lord. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve. 
So the story goes, according to Dr. Martin, that, that some of them were doing the backyard clubs. Well, there was that one afternoon that Arturo and a couple others were doing a backyard club. And as they were doing a backyard club, he noticed that there was an older man sitting there. Chuck, you're in the front row. You're my illustration. He saw an older Chuck, okay? <laughs> you can slap me afterwards. But the older gentleman was just sitting there listening with rapt attention to a kid's ministry. And so when it was all done, Arturo, thinking, this is strange that this older gentleman would just be so... So he got into conversation with him. And he started talking to this older man, and this older man didn't know about Jesus. They started conversing. And he shared more with him. And he said, I would like to know more about Jesus, but I have to go. His daughter was coming to collect the kids and him. And so he said, can you come to my house and talk to me later some other time? Yeah, sure. Arturo then wrapped up, went back to the campus, and he and some other student, they also had some other ministry that they were going to do for Christ, serving other people. And so they did that. When they were all done, uh, Arturo asked his friend, he says, hey, can you go with me? There's this older man. He wanted to talk more about the gospel. Let's go and see him today. I know we've been busy all day, but let's go see him today. He might need to know the Lord that day. And so they got on to the friend's cycle. It was a cycle, single, single seat, and then a, um, a passenger car next to it. They're going down the road, and a bus hit him. The one was thrown and broke his foot, but Arturo had head damage. Pastor Martin got the phone call around supper time saying, hey, there was an accident. He went to the hospital. He said, I couldn't recognize Arturo. He was just so badly uh, beaten and, and, and just bandaged up. The hemorrhaging was so bad, they transferred him to another hospital where there was more expertise in that hospital. And by midnight, the doctors came out and said, we think he's got a 50-50 chance. But, you know, it's still 50-50. Oh, Pastor Martin and others were excited that he made it this far, and it looks like he might pull through. At 4 o'clock, there was a knock on his door. Pastor Martin said he got the word that Arturo passed away. At the service that they held for him, at the conclusion of it all, they were... They were concluding everything, and they were talking about Arturo and his testimony. Here's what Pastor Martin wrote, and closed the service with this. We all felt much sorrow because we loved him, but Arturo Morales was a great blessing to IBC. He was a young man whose testimony was a great example to us all. Here was a Christian servant who made a statement with his life and his death. He gave up his Christmas vacation to help others, And the last conscious thought he had was trying to help a man come to know Jesus Christ. I never want to forget the sacrifice Arturo made and the burden he had for souls. He was truly a Christian servant who put the gospel and others first. Could that be said about you? Father, I pray, help us through this whole diatribe not just to walk away with knowledge, but help us to walk away with a challenge to serve, to make you preeminent in our life that you are the one we serve. Father, thank you for the attentiveness of these folk here and as well at home. And I pray that you would guide and direct our day where we serve, serve, serve to the best of our abilities. Help us to serve as members when we come to this business later today. Help us to serve as family members. Help us to serve as witnesses. Help us to serve, we pray in Jesus' name.